The verses read to us, 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8, when read alone and standing alone may seem somewhat enigmatic. What is, what is John saying here? What exactly does this mean? We'll, we'll dig into that. But I'd like to begin in verse 5 of chapter 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Father, you have given us the life, and we declare this morning and believe the life is in the Son. That Jesus Christ is God and eternal life. And it's under this declaration, Lord, that we approach you. And we approach your word this morning. We approach the scriptures. We do so hungrily, desiring to be fed and nourished and strengthened by your word. Father, we desire just to speak truth here. So, So keep us focused, Lord, on your word and on the truth. Your word is truth, as Jesus said. And as the word just told us, your spirit is the truth. So we're seeking word and spirit this morning. And we're desiring to hear from you, Lord. Would you feed us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus testified in John chapter 5. Keep your finger in 1 John 5 and go back to John 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5. Where Jesus himself begins to give testimony. It's interesting to me throughout the Bible that there are moments of testimony. Where we enter the courtroom. You do in Isaiah 43 and 44. You do here in John chapter 5 with Jesus. And John brings us back to the courtroom in 1 John 5. We'll return there in just a moment. But in John chapter 5 verse 31. Jesus is speaking to an unruly group of Jewish people who are seeking to kill him. Which is interesting to me, I'm not sure how you talk to people who are seeking to kill you. I think I would do so gingerly, not so with the Lord. He says in verse 31, John 5, 31, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that is John the Baptist, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. 
You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. And you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. Testimony. Jesus testifies. John began this letter with testimony. As you recall, what we have heard, what we have seen, he he testifies. And now he ends this letter in the last chapter again with testimony. These are love letters of John that we are in. Three letters that we're reading here. We're only still in the first one. We have two more to look at. We'll get to those next Sunday and the following Wednesday. Today and Wednesday we're going to be in chapter 5, finishing out the first letter. But here in the last chapter of the first love letter of John, he's talked about so far walking in the light. Right? Chapters 1 and 2. He's talked about living the love. Chapters 3 and 4. And now in chapter 5, finally we get to the section I call loving the life. Loving the life. Do you love the life? You see, the one who loves the life testifies. If you can't testify, can't say that you love the life. No one can claim to love Jesus who refuses to testify. Amen? Can I get a witness? <laughs> do we even know what to do with that? Can I get a witness? I don't know what that means. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Can I get a witness? Hey, Marvin Gaye sang it back in 1963. The Rolling Stones covered it a year later, followed by Dusty Springfield, Sam Brown, The Supremes, The Temptations, and even Elton John. Can I get a witness? But in the words of that great theologian from Florin, Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what they think it means. Can I get a witness? I think it's an interesting phrase, and you know I'm interested by interesting phrases. According to one source, this phrase and the idea of witnessing is very strong within the black American religious tradition. And it indicated a fulfillment of an expectation of God intervention in everyday life. Can I get a witness? They would say. And still today... In addition to anticipation of divine presence in everyday living, witnessing also involves an affirmation of understanding or or agreement that God had and would work in the lives of church people. And furthermore, in religious services, church members who give a testimony of how God has moved in their lives engage the audience by asking, can I get a witness? And within this context, what they're asking is if anyone has had a similar experience of the move of divine intervention to their own experiences. Can I get a witness? It's like saying, who can relate? And someone would say, amen. It's like saying, are you with me? Yes, we are. Hallelujah. And in turn, of course, members of the congregation respond, expressing affirmation either through hand clapping and much excitement and shouts of amen. So can I get a witness? What are you even giving a witness to yet? I haven't said anything. (laughs) In the passage before us, we're going to get a witness here. We're in the biblical courtroom drama once again, and it plays out in a remarkable way. And this morning, we're going to call three witnesses to the stand. 
Three separate witnesses who will express the testimony that John is trying to get across, desires to get across in this letter. Really, it's the the primary testimony of the entire letter. And the first witness we call to the stand, we call so that we might hear the testimony of Jesus Christ. First witness, the testimony of Christ, beginning in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John claims that Jesus is the source of overcoming the world. We we note back in verse 4, he says this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But don't misunderstand, our faith is not what overcomes the world. It is our faith in Jesus. Jesus is the source of overcoming. Our faith is placed in Him. It's not just generic faith, because faith can be misplaced. It's not that if you believe strongly and have great faith, you will overcome the world. Not at all. It's if you have faith in Jesus, you will overcome the world. Our faith in Him is the overcoming. He has overcome, and He is how we overcome. Can I get a witness to that? And remember, when we talk about overcoming the world, it's not conquering the universe. Yes, the world there is cosmos. But we're not playing Star Wars or Mass Effect or Halo 27. This is not Ready Player One. It's not Wade Watts in the Oasis. Second service will get that, I think, a little better. The world that we, (laughs) the world we overcome, The cosmos, as we talked about last week, is the unbelieving world that stands in opposition to God. By faith in Christ, you overcome that. You overcome the doubts. You overcome the disbelief. You you overcome the despair and the distress. And yes, the destruction through belief in the Son of God. You see, these are things no philosophy of man or culture or people has ever been able to conquer. Here we are in 2018 and doubt still reigns in our world. Despair runs rampant. Distress, depression, destruction. These are all things that are as real to the human experience as they were 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. They are still here today. No one's been able to figure out a way out of this stuff. Except Jesus, who was never conquered by any of it. And who even when faced with death itself, the ultimate destruction of human life, conquered faith in Jesus. That's the victory that overcomes the world. The world in its despair, the world in its destruction. It's the overcoming. And ultimately, John is heading toward overcoming death itself. So he says again in verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, and not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. The testimony of Christ. The testimony of Christ in and of Himself, in His life, in His expression, in what He did. Jesus' life is testimony to the truth of God. Testimony of Christ. Now, many see verse 6 and following as a difficult text to interpret. It's not. It's only difficult if we go out on an allegorical limb. But if we let Scripture determine Scripture, if we don't try to lead the witness here, if we don't get into speculation, because if we do, if there's speculation, I object. Leading the witness, I object. 
Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's do that. Two phrases here, and the first one is with the water. With the water. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. So two phrases, with the water and with the blood. What does that mean? With the water is in hudachi. In the Greek, and it literally is in water. So where your Bible, if your Bible translates it with the water, it should just say in water, in hudati. And in John's Gospel, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we see this exact phrase just three times. In hudati. Three times. John chapter 1 verse 26, John the Baptist answered them saying, I baptize in hudati, in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know, John says. In John 1.31, John the Baptist again says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in Hudati, in water. And then John 1.33, the third time, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in Hudati said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In water. Jesus came in water. Some have tried to say, well, that's the fluids of birth. Oh, maybe. But the exact phrase that John uses, and now John is the one writing and uses the phrase again, in hudati, in water, well, in John's Gospel, it referred to baptism. Hold that thought. Do you remember what Jesus said when John the Baptist balked at baptizing him? Remember Jesus came up to him? And he he came to get baptized, and John's like, what? No, 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 no. He tried to prevent him. Matthew 3, 13 through 15 says, John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said, permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. See, John understood enough to know he was the one who was dirty, though he was in the water baptizing. He was the dirty one. He was the one who needed to be cleansed by the Savior, cleansed by the Messiah, cleansed by Jesus. So he says, no, Lord, you baptize me. You're the clean one. And Jesus says, no, no. Let this this be done to fulfill all righteousness. We read that and go, okay, now that's another phrase. What does that mean? Jesus wasn't baptized to become clean. You're right, He already was. But this action was to do all things right, to fulfill all righteousness. It was the right thing to do. Meaning what? Watch this. Jesus was baptized just prior to what? What big event? Well, not even event. Let's just put it out here this way. He was baptized before His public ministry got baptized, and then after that, he was led into the wilderness wilderness and was tempted for 40 days, and then he comes back with the power of the Spirit and begins his ministry for three years. But he's, he's baptized, and something changes, something happens, something takes place in that moment. We could say Jesus was baptized and then began his priestly ministry. His priestly ministry. And we're going to tie this all together, but keep your finger here and go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book of the Bible. 
in Leviticus chapter 8, and it's also in Exodus, I believe, 29, the Lord gives a prescription for a priest becoming a priest. What does that look like? How do you become ordained to a priesthood? And Jesus, preparing now for his public ministry, comes to be baptized. Watch this. The Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. And then Moses and Aaron and his sons came near and washed them with water. He put a tunic on him and girded him with a sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and girded him with the artistic band of the ephod which he tied to him. And then he placed the breast piece on him and the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim, not the umathurmin. Put the turban on his head and, and the turban on his friend put, put the golden plate on the turban, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded. He then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was on it, consecrated them, sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils, and the basin and its stands to consecrate them. And then he poured, note this, he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Next, Moses and Aaron's sons came near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound caps on them just as the Lord had commanded them. And then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and Moses slaughtered it. Did you notice the order of things there? What took place in the consecration of the priest? He was washed. He was anointed. And then there was a blood sacrifice. Keep that thinking together. Do you see it? Three things that apply. Water, blood, and anointing. You could say water, blood, and spirit. See, the Lord was hinting, even in the consecration of the priests of Israel, was hinting to things that would come. And Jesus, when He stepped into the water, begins the process. Follows the pattern, fulfills all righteousness. He goes into the water, in Hudati, in the waters of baptism. He's baptized, he's washed to fulfill all righteousness. Again, not because the perfect Messiah needed baptism, but to fulfill the picture. To do things right. He goes into the water. And then the Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Anointing with oil, we've talked about so many times, is the picture of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes into the water. He is anointed with the Spirit as the, as the Spirit comes upon Him. And as further testimony of what was taking place in the moment of Jesus' baptism, God testified from the heavens, Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, get this, John is countering some false teachers with these love letters. He's not just writing love letters because he loves the people. Oh, he does. But there's false teaching going on around the area. And so John comes along and early on begins to counter a wrong teaching. There were those who were teaching that when the Spirit descended on Jesus at His baptism, it was the Christ Spirit that came upon Him and indwelled Him. That before His baptism, He was just a human. There was nothing divine, nothing special in Him 
But when he was baptized, then the Christ Spirit descended and filled him, and now he has the Christ Spirit. And they went on to say he was only human before, and he would only be human after. That is, before the crucifixion, the Christ Spirit departed. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Understand, the Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us in His birth. At His birth, He was divine from the moment of His first breath in human flesh. Jesus came, Isaiah 7.14, Matthew 1.22-23, which is why John wrote back in 1 John chapter 4, Verse 2, he said, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that is specific. Every spirit that confesses Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, has come in the flesh. The Christ came in the flesh. The Christ didn't come upon the flesh at His baptism. But He was born Christ Jesus. He testified in word and in deed, beginning with Inhudati, beginning with his baptism and culminating in his death. But what else does John say? This is the one who came not in the water only, but in the water and in the blood in Hamati. Inhudati in Hamati. It's easy to remember that. Inhudati in water, in Hamati, in blood. Where have we seen those two things together? John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen, John says, note this, he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. Believe what, John? That the blood and the water together testify Jesus came as God in the flesh, was baptized as God in the flesh, and died as God in the flesh. It was God on the cross. It was God pierced through by the nails. It was God with the crown of thorns. It was God who said to Telestai, it is finished. It was God who gave up His Spirit. God in flesh. And again, those heretics, what they taught at this time was before the nails went in, before He was hoisted up on the cross, the Christ Spirit departed so as not to be harmed, so as to be protected, He was kept away, and then He came back in the resurrection. Why would they teach that? Well, well it was unthinkable, especially to the Greek mindset. It was offensive. It was foolishness to say that God could hang or should hang on a cross. Remember what Paul said about that? 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. Note the words there. He doesn't say we preach Jesus crucified. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And there are still people today who teach this Christ spirit idea. It got really big in the late 80s and the 90s with the New Age movement. The Christ spirit came upon Jesus, departed Jesus, came back on Jesus, and you can have the Christ spirit too. Well, I'll tell you, you can have the spirit of Christ dwelling within, but you don't have or become the Christ spirit. Not the way the heretics would would paint it. God on a cross. Offensive? Christ crucified? 
Foolishness, perhaps, but it was the only way. He had to hang on the cross. It had to be God. Why? Because only a perfect God could pay the eternal penalty for the sins of humanity. Only a perfect God. And that is the testimony of Christ. So Christ on the stand gives the testimony in His very life. He came in Hudati. He's baptized. He does all things for righteousness' sake. He does it right. Like a priest being consecrated, the Holy Spirit comes upon Him as with the oil of anointing. And then the blood comes out as Jesus is crucified. And at the end of it, the blood and the water together. And John is very clear in the Gospel to say, I saw, I'm testifying to you, I saw it happen. What did you see, John? Blood and water. He saw the death of the Christ on the cross. It's vital to our understanding of what God Himself did. Like we talked about, I believe, last week, God is not a distant God sitting off on the clouds watching some other lesser being take the penalty for our sin. He took it on Himself in Jesus at the cross. That's the testimony of Christ. Our high priest, perfect high priest, washed in water. Himself becoming the sin offering for the people and anointed with the Spirit. Spirit, water, and blood. And speaking of the Spirit, you Christians, if you claim to be a Christian, you know what I'm telling you is true. You knew before I said it. How do we know it's true? Second person we call to the stand, the testimony of the Spirit. Continue on in verse 6. It is the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. Hey, that's Torah law. It's the Spirit who testifies and the three are in agreement. And Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 or Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 repeated by Jesus in Matthew 18.16, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Three witnesses, not even just two, but three. To confirm the fact of the life in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Three that testify. And all three are in full agreement. But wait a minute. Maybe you're sitting there reading the King James translation. Anyone have a KJV with you this morning? Okay. And you're going, Rick, you are missing some major theology here. You just skipped right over it. Well, I didn't. The New American Standard Bible said it in the margin. So did the NIV. Now, you might have noticed your Bible margin. If you're looking ahead and trying to beat me to the punch, you've already studied this. You're sitting there going, I know exactly where he's going. No, you don't. No, you don't. There is something here, and you might note in the margins of your Bible, if you have an NASB, or if you have the King James, you got it right there in Scripture, which is where it belongs. My thought. It even has a name, this little extra verse that seems to be missing. It's called the Johannine Comma. They, they titled it. And it goes like this. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on the earth. And then it continues in verse 8. The water and the blood and the Spirit. 
But this verse is omitted. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Why is that verse omitted? Or or, or set aside? Why isn't it just right here in all our Bibles? And more importantly, should it be omitted? And I again say, absolutely not. It's a powerful statement of the Trinity. In fact, it's perhaps the most overt statement of the triune nature of God the Father, the Word Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. In the entire Bible... This is the most overt statement of the Trinity. And again, in my opinion, it should not be marginalized. But hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Verse 7 does tell us that there are three that testify. And then goes on to the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. This is typical, plain-spoken, straight-talking, tell-it-like-it-is John. Sometimes we in our, you know, 20th, 21st century culture, we read stuff like this and go, the Spirit, the water, the blood, ooh, that's mystical. John's not going mystical on us. Just as tangible as the witnesses of water and blood, so is the certainty of the third witness, the Spirit. As he came in water, and it was obvious he did this, as the blood flowed, and it was obvious that that happened, so the Spirit is a tangible testifier of Jesus Christ. The testimony of the Spirit. What John is saying here is, if you believe and can confess Jesus has come in the flesh, it's only because the Holy Spirit's in you. We talked about this Wednesday night. How do I know that the Holy Spirit resides within me? The the litmus test, question number one. Can you testify that Jesus is the Christ? Have you testified? Yes. Well, then the Spirit is in you. Because you couldn't do it otherwise. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You could not testify to the Christness of Jesus that He is the Christ without the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter when Peter stumbled into that stunning confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, He cried. And Jesus very gently, I think, said, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven. What's he saying? Peter, there's only one reason you were able to make this confession. God told you. God testified it to you. You just blurted out what you heard. You just said what you learned from the Father. You know, we don't figure Jesus out. We don't factor him in. Because it's never about figures or facts. It's about faith. And I know when I say something like that, what the world hears is taking a blind leap. And that is not what I'm saying. Look back at verse 4 again. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And Paul writes in Romans 10.17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word Christ. In other words, you hear And faith comes. He doesn't say faith causes you to be able to hear. He says faith comes from hearing. You hear first. 
And faith comes. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying God gives it to you. He gives you the faith to believe. The faith to hear Him. He speaks it to you. You hear. And the life-changing moment for every single one of us is when a person says, when you said, when I said, all right, all right, God, if this is true, and if you are really there, give me the faith to believe in you. Help me believe in you. The rebellious human heart doesn't want to ask God if He's there. The rebellious human heart wants to ignore. The rebellious human heart actually will acknowledge God by saying there is no such thing as God. And they get angry about it. And you get angry about something you don't believe. The rebellious human heart wants to put off this idea of, of actually asking God to give faith. If you're there, Lord... Would you show yourself to me? That When I talk to people who are not believing or struggling with the whole concept, I've read the Bible, I see these things, it, it, it fascinates me, but I just, how, do, I don't, how do I get there? I always say, just ask God. But why don't you just ask Him? Say, Lord, help me believe. It's what the Father said when His Son was rolling around in fits. And He said, Jesus, if You can help us. Jesus said, if... All things are possible to those who believe. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, just would you help me believe? By the way, the whole idea of faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ works for any struggle or situation that you face. That is taking it straight to the Lord because as John said back in chapter 2 verse 20, His anointing teaches you about all things. You have trouble understanding something? Maybe it's what's going on in your life. Why is this happening to me? I don't understand my circumstances. I don't know why this is going on. Hey, His anointing teaches you about all things. Ask. John says His anointing is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. You see, unlike any other religion out there, any other faith, faith in Jesus is not man-made It's God-given. He gives us our faith. His Spirit testifies within you the testimony of Christ. It is by the Spirit that you can declare Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how it works. And if you can't declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, then ask. I'm struggling with this whole Christian thing. God, help me believe. It's only when we don't want to believe that we don't ask for the help. Help me just to believe. And the testimony of Christ comes loud and clear by the testimony of the Spirit. But there's one more we need to ask to come up to the stand, the witness stand this morning. We need to hear, number three, the testimony of God. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. At Jesus' baptism, on the Mount of Transfiguration, literally, specifically, God said, This is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And on the mountain, He also said, Listen to Him. We're so quick to believe each other about all kinds of ridiculous things. We see it on the news and we go, Oh, 
That must be the way it is. That's why the whole Trump fake news thing drives people crazy. Well, no, but they said it on TV. It has to be true. I saw it on YouTube. It's got to be true. And John says, if we receive the testimony of men, which we do all the time, we take each other at our word all the time. Hey, I'll meet you at 3 o'clock. We assume the guy's going to be there. When he's not there, we're like, how could you not be there? You said you would be there. We put such a high premium on the testimony of men. And John says, the testimony of God is greater. Far greater. The testimony of of God is huge. God won't let us down. God is faithful. God speaks and He does what He says. Hebrews 6.18 says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that is, His promise and Himself. Because He swears by Himself. He can't lie either way. He can't speak a lie and He cannot be a lie. And by these two things, we who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Again, Hebrews 6.18. We'll take each other at our word, but God's word is far greater. Verse 10 says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe that God does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Listen, this is serious business when we question the God-given promise of our eternity, of our salvation in Jesus Christ, we call into question his integrity. We challenge his reliability. We go head to head with his faithfulness. Anytime a Christian says, I know you say that I'm saved, but I'm just not sure. Let me remind you, Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Psalm 132, it says, I will magnify your name above all your word. Why? Because God swears by His own name. And God's own word and His name, His nature is one. And both are absolute faithfulness. God cannot lie because the truth is in Him. The Spirit is the truth. God is truth. And Paul wrote in Titus 1 verse 2, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promise long ages ago the promise of salvation of eternal life and when a Christian says I I just don't know if I'm one of the ones who's saved well you're questioning God's integrity because he said you were if in fact you believe that Jesus is the Christ if you have declared Jesus Christ eternal life through Jesus is God's testimony. Verse 11. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God 
does not have the life. That's how simple it is. That is blatant. It's straightforward. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And John confirms having heard it. He declares the same thing. If you don't have Jesus, you do not have eternal life. It's as cut and dried as that. Can I get a witness? This is what John declares. This is what the Scriptures declare. You can't ride the fence and have it both ways or a multiplicity of ways. You can't say, well, Jesus is good and I believe in Him, but I also have these other systems of belief that I think are good too. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. That's it. But remember what I said earlier, that the one who loves the life testifies of the life? See, more than than you and me, God is the one who loves the life. God is love, right? John says it twice in this letter. God is love. He is the epitome of love. He is the definition of love. It's not that love is God, it's that God is love. God shows us love. And, And John says Jesus is the life. God is love, and Jesus is the life, so you could say God loves the life. And so he testified from the earliest days, testified of the life, God giving testimony, the Son giving testimony, the Spirit giving testimony. And as far as John is concerned here, loving the life is loving the Christ, loving Jesus. Jesus, who represents all that is good, and all that is true, and all that is joyful, and all that is peace, and all that is right about life. Man, love the life. Can you say you love the life? The life who is Jesus Christ. If you love the life, guess what? The Spirit has told you so. And so we have on the stand the testimony of God. The testimony of the Spirit. The testimony of Jesus Christ Himself. And we have, of course, the picture in Jesus of the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three are in agreement. But the Father and Jesus and the Spirit. He doesn't say these three are in agreement. He says these three are one. Oh, oh, that's right, Rick, that marginalized verse. Go back to it. Why is it marginalized? And should it be? You might say, well, Rick, again, I've been studying this out while you were teaching. And the margin clearly tells us why it's not in the Scriptures. If you notice that, Pastor, perhaps you missed that one, that this verse is only in the later manuscripts. Oh. Well, then perhaps we should discount it. Get out the scissors. I happen to know, Pastor, because I studied this out ahead of time, that the verse only shows up for the first time in the 10th century. There you go. And you know what? It's true. First time we see this verse, this omitted verse, this marginalized verse that's in the King James translation, the first time we see it is in the 10th century in copies of Scripture. You understand, we don't have the originals. Then we have copies. That the Scriptures are based on copies of the originals. God is able, faithful to keep His Word and has kept it to us. And those copies of the originals were written very early, copied very early on. But among them, this verse, 
in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, it's just not there. Here's what's interesting to me. That verse and three others in the New Testament are all marginalized. There are four. Four verses, and you can see them, I think all of them are in the King James translation, which is a shout out to King James. Four verses that have been marginalized in all of our other translations ever since. First one, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which includes Jesus saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Well, that's cool. We hear that in Matthew 28. So we're good. We got coverage. And he says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. And they will speak with new tongues. Oh, we don't like that one. They will pick up serpents. Joe, you got a snake with you? Where are you, Joe? You ready? Bring them out. Do a little snake handling. No, hey, listen. They will pick up serpents. Well, Paul did that. Remember? He was out there on the, on the island and reached for a stick to throw in the fire and, and, a, and a serpent... A viper jumped out and bit him on the hand. And Paul's like, well, that's annoying. <laughs> and the natives are waiting for him to drop dead and he doesn't. Well, they'll pick up deadly serpents. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover marginalized. Second one, John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, the account, the beautiful, stirring, emotional account of the woman caught in adultery, condemned by the Pharisees, but not condemned by Jesus. That's only in later manuscripts, man, so get out the scissors. Third one, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that most Bibles dare not cut out, but it's not there in the early manuscripts. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is why Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery. So those three, and lastly, 1 John chapter 5, between verses 7 and 8, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Oh, the Jehovah's Witnesses hate that verse. It's too bold a declaration. Cut it out. In fact, if you talk with a Jehovah's Witness, they've already studied this verse and they are ready to argue its validity with anyone who would dare bring out a King James translation. And they will argue that it is not in those early manuscripts, therefore not there, and this verse that states clearly the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who is one, This blatant statement of the Trinity in the New Testament and it is marginalized in most of our Bibles. Hmm. First of all, note this. All four of these verses have strong internal support throughout the New Testament. That I, I can take these four verses out and still believe everything that these four verses declare. So God's covered Himself because there's always two or three witnesses. And He stated everything very clearly. But these these four verses being set aside like they are, interesting to me. Because each one bears a powerful statement of truth. 
Mark 16, in John 7 and 8, Romans 8, 1, and here in 1 John 5, 7 and 8, these statements of truth are declarative. Can I get a witness? Statements of truth. And all of them just, just subtly set aside. Yeah, but, but Rick, if they weren't there, why would you support them? Again, as I said, it's true. In the oldest copies of the New Testament text that we have, those four are omitted or they're, they're missing. Here's what intrigues me. Several of the early church fathers do include and preach from these verses. We have copies of that. In fact, we have original manuscripts. We have sermons that predate the oldest New Testament manuscripts and sermons that include all four of these passages. It would be like someone saying to you today, 1 John 5, verses 5 through 12 is not there. It's not there. And then someone plays a recording of this message. Well, Rick got it from somewhere. Where did he get it? Sermons that are included, that they include all of the verses in Mark 16, everything in John 8, everything included in Romans 8.1, and all of these verses, this whole section, the marginalized section, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, was preached on by early church fathers. Where'd they get it? Well, it wasn't in the oldest manuscript. Yeah, but it was, it was referred to prior to the oldest manuscript. Tertullian quoted 1 John 5, 7 through 8, including this marginalized section in 200 AD. We have that. A man by the name of Cyprian quoted this exact thing in 250 AD. And we have well over a dozen sermons, including this verse, from very early on. It rings true. It was spoken of, it was declared, it was believed earlier than the oldest manuscripts. And there are three that testify. In heaven the Father, and then the Word Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm still not sure I buy that. Okay, you want verification? Go back to Jesus' baptism. The Son is there in the water, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present in the same place. There's the Trinity. And the Bible is clear on this understanding of God and how He presents Himself to us. These three are one. And so this morning, in fact, the entire section we've been reading is what I would call a triune testimony. The testimony of Jesus Christ in and of Himself. The testimony of the Holy Spirit who is the truth. And the testimony of God the Father. Jesus, Spirit, and Father. All three testify the complete triunity. And what is their testimony? What is the testimony? It's very simple in all of this. The Son is the life. Can I get a witness? The Son is the life. Are you with me? The Son is the life. Can you relate? Do you believe this? Do you love the life? John lands with the point of the entire wonderful love letter in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know? You can. You can. 
I don't know, I'm struggling. I don't know if I can believe this stuff. Just ask God. Don't be afraid to just ask Him to reveal it to you. It's really that simple. Do you know that you have eternal life? And I'll tell you this. That knowledge, that understanding is the only thing that makes this life worth the living. Father, we pray to You, believing. Spirit, we understand that You speak truth. And Lord Jesus, oh, what You did with the water, by the Spirit, and in the blood. How You lived. Oh, Lord, how do we thank You? How do we praise You? How do we worship You? You blow our minds with Your deep, deep love. But God, I I thank You that You've made this so clear that the Son is the life. And we don't have to guess which way we're going. We don't have to go, Lord, to Google Maps to find our way. We just go to Jesus. Because You love us so much. Thank You, Lord. I'm going to pray right now. And if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord, if you are one who has been in despair or distress or doubt, you can pray right now to receive Jesus, who is the life. And you can walk out of here this morning knowing that you have eternal life. So I invite you to pray with me. And even if you've prayed this prayer before, I invite you to pray it again as we give witness and testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. Would you just repeat after me in your heart to the Lord? Lord Jesus, increase my faith. God, help my belief. This morning, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Lord Jesus, that You came to this earth, that You died on the cross, and that You rose again. And I pray that You will come into my life and be my Lord. Be my King. Be my authority. And help me to walk with You from here and forevermore. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you prayed that prayer, Or if you have questions about that prayer, why don't you come and talk to one of us? If you've given your life to Jesus and you've never been baptized, hey, the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify. And Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Well, I don't have to be baptized. I was saved when I gave my life to Jesus years and years ago. Okay. Jesus didn't have to be baptized either. But He did so to fulfill all righteousness. If you've never been immersed, come this morning. Let's do it. If you have anything else we can pray with you about, please come. Let's stand and sing together. We'll be up here at the front and in the back to receive you.